welcome to Lecture 7A of IT Service Quality Management. My name is Brendan Birchmore, and we are finally into the discussions about ISO IEC 20000. Before we get into the specifics of that standard, let's cover a bit of the basics around what are ISO standards, what are IEC standards, and what does all this do for us, and why do we bother? Well, ISO as an organisation began back in the 1940s. It involved 65 delegates from 25 countries that got together to figure out a way of having a globalised standard. At the time, it was mostly to do with things like engineering practices. And in 1947, the ISO organisation officially comes into existence and it had a, a bunch of technical committees, around about 67 of them, experts, each specialising on a particular field or a subject. Now, the purpose of the organisation was to create and to document standards that could be adhered to by organisations around the world. Later, it also created a benchmarking for organisations that wanted to become certified or compliant to prove that they were actually achieving those standards. And in the years since their creation, the organisation has released over 20,000 international standards. These standards evolve over the years, and most standards they look at or re-examine every several years, perhaps every five years, to check to see if what needs to be brought up to date, what needs to be modified and evolved. The standard we're going to discuss, ISO 20000, has recently been through that evolution and has been republished as of 2018. Its previous version was published in 2011. And usually when standards get revised and updated, they become more aligned, not only with each other, but with whatever else is going on in the industry. And in the case of ISO 20000, we'll find that it's more aligned with discussion points around IT governance, IT service management, and things like ITIL. So these publications are meant to help organisations to understand what a clear, definitive standard of excellence or standard of quality looks like. There are a lot of things that many governments around the world would like to enforce as standards. For example, safety standards. And rather than each government investing the time and money in devising and publishing their own standards, an international standard allows most organisations or most governments around the world to simply point to that standard and say, well, we accept that standard and that's what we're going to write into our laws or our guidelines of what organisations need to do in our country. There are some large areas of the world that have smaller subgroups, Europe, North America, and large countries often have their own standards that might differ slightly from the international standards. But for most of the world, the ISO standards are an acceptable benchmark for determining what quality looks like. The way in which ISO standards are written is intended to be unambiguous. It is meant to be able to give an absolute understanding so that what it defines can be measured and therefore can be proven. Standards do not give vague advice or suggestions. They provide a very clear understanding of what must be in place in order to be compliant with that standard. Because the standard is written in order to be complied with, not merely followed however we feel like it. 
Now, that's not to say that we can't. Many organisations do use ISO standards as merely a guideline. Those who are not likely to invest within themselves to take it all the way to becoming certified in that standard will simply use it as a guide to aim in that direction. But organisations that are serious about what it means for them are going to go all the way and not only comply with every aspect of the standard, but be certified to prove to the outside world that they've done that. So the standards are about delivering consistency. It's about being dependable, about making sure. And ISO is about developing standards that make sure that the things that they apply to work correctly, that engineering things are built to certain specifications, that activities and processes work effectively. So it's not simply about being good at anything in particular. It's about being good in line with what accepted best practices are expecting in the era in which that standard applies. And this is one of the reasons why they keep evolving over time. So the standards offer a set of specifications that ensures that things are fit for purpose, that things that follow those standards are working to an acceptable level. This also helps with collaboration and alignment. By having multiple organisations, perhaps even in different parts of the world, operating to the same standard or working to the same understanding of what good or excellent looks like makes it easier for those organisations to work in a collaborative and cooperative way. They are working to the same standard, so they know what each other is doing or at least what they're trying to do. And those who are the beneficiaries of what they produce, they know what they're getting because they can understand what the standard expects and know that if the organisations are following the standard, then they can rely on a minimum level of quality outcome. Now, ISO IEC 20000 has not only ISO, but IEC. It is a joint publication. And the IEC stands for the International Electrotechnical Commission. And a bit like ISO as an organisation, they are an independent global organisation that deal with standards and conformity assessment, but specifically for electrical, electronic and related technologies. And this is where you find the overlap with IT service quality management, because it's a technical function. And as a joint publication, it means that both organisations have worked together to establish a set of standards that works not only for the business side, of service delivery, but for the technical side of information technology service delivery. Now, when it comes to these standards, there are some fundamental principles that apply or exist in most of the way these standards are written. There is the idea of corrective action and preventative action. The idea that when something isn't right, we fix it, we take corrective action. But more than that, we always know when something isn't right because we're constantly doing the kinds of preventative action that is going to reveal to us what needs to be corrected. Another fundamental principle is the plan, do, check and act, the Deming cycle. This is a fundamental concept within the standards that says, well, we plan and make some decisions in order to get it right. Then we do the things that are going to work from that plan. But then we check what we've done to see if it's working as we expected. And then we act on what we've learned from checking it and correct it. 
And being a cycle means that by adhering to these standards, we are constantly planning, doing, checking and acting, which means at no point does it ever become stagnant. There is always an ongoing improvement and always an ongoing adherence to the requirements of the standard. Another thing that all of the ISO standards are strong on is accountability and responsibility. In any organisation, standards must begin or be endorsed from the top down and must have executive level buy-in and full support. And the ISOs are pretty strict with this. They're not something that can only operate at a departmental level because the true stakeholders that are the coordinators, operators or even owners of the business or those who represent the owners they must embrace what the standards are expecting from the top down because they have the ultimate accountability. So according to ISO, it's not enough to simply have a department that's operating really well and following a standard. Who that department reports to or who is responsible for the output of that department must also embrace and support what that standard expects of them and the organisation beneath them. In the modern era... One of the benefits of having these standards is that it allows organisations to prove to others that this is how we work. This is the standard to which we operate and we deliver. And so from a commercial point of view, it operates as a differentiator. Companies might choose to become ISO compliant in a certain way to prove to the world and to their customers and to their suppliers that that's the standard at which they operate. Because it's neither cheap nor easy to achieve that certification and be compliant with certain standards. It takes so much effort that it's something that most organisations only do if they have some sort of benefit coming back to them, perhaps in the way of customers or perhaps in the way of being able to build confidence, either from a community, from a population or from their customer base. But this means that the standards are not just telling us what we need to do. They're telling us how we can prove that we will do that. Compliance with an ISO standard doesn't just mean that we know how to get it right. It doesn't just mean that we know what good looks like. It doesn't mean that we know that we can do it. Not even enough to say that we know that we always do it. It's not enough for us to know that we always do it right. It has to be that we can prove to others that we will always get it right in the future. So it's not just about doing all the right things today. It's having all of the right things in place that means that we are always checking how we do this. So if ever we might slip below the benchmarks, we will immediately know, and we know already, according to the standard, what we must do or take action on to deal with it. That's where the long-term proof and certainty comes from. But these standards, because they don't include instructions, they're generic enough to work for anyone, for any organisation. So they're not instructions, they're not a how-to, they're more of a list of what must be. And they are full of wording that's very unambiguous. It says the organisation shall, the executives shall, not should, but you will do this if you wish to be compliant. This is what leads to the mantra that I like to use with ISO standards, and that is no exceptions, no excuses. ISO does not allow for having a go. It doesn't support near enough. There are no exceptions to the requirements of the standard, and there are no excuses for falling short. 
And as an IT service entity, we should adopt the idea of not looking for excuses and not allowing exceptions if we want to be ISO 20,000 or any ISO compliant. This is the end of Lecture 7A. Welcome to Lecture 7B of IT Service Quality Management. Brendan Birchmore here, and we're going to introduce the ISO IEC 20000 standard in particular. And from here on, I'm going to refer to it as simply the 20K standard for ease of reference and discussion. Now, unsurprisingly, it's focused on IT service management. That's what it's all about. It's an ISO IEC document. So it pays homage to the technical aspects of what it's working with. It's divided into several parts, and what we are going to cover is part one. This is where most of the interesting, elemental, fundamental discussions and requirements exist for the operation of a service management system. Now, as a document or as a publication, it follows the high-level structure or the HLS of ISO documents. And this is a common structure amongst ISO documents that allows them to be aligned with each other and to easily correlate. Other documents or other standards that are often used in conjunction with 20K includes ISO 9001 and 27001. 9001 being general quality in terms of the quality of products or things that organizations produce. 27001 to do with information security, which is important and complex enough to function separately outside of the 20K document. But the structure of all of these documents means that it's meant to be easy to align them and figure out what applies in what situation. And this one, the 20,000 document, revolves around the service management system, and it goes to some pains to describe what it means by this. It defines this in a table at the beginning that separates the different components of SMS management. Not so much the components of the SMS itself, but of the way in which the SMS must be managed. And this correlates to the different clauses and sections of the document. Here we have things like the context of the organization, the leadership, the planning, the support and operation of the service management system, and then performance evaluation and improvement. So these aren't things that just happen within the SMS. These are things that happen to the SMS. It's essentially the things that the standard does or needs to apply to the service management system. But it doesn't specify that this is a sequence or a hierarchy or a particular structure that's required. It allows the organizations to combine or juggle these elements and these functions however we like. But we can't miss out on any of them. We mustn't exclude any element that is described here in the breakdown of the SMS. And 20,000 and in fact all of the ISO documents are full of things exactly like that. Things that we can rearrange or do differently if we like, but we cannot skip them. We cannot exclude them in order to be compliant. So this makes it a kind of a checklist of all of the must-haves in order for us to be compliant with ISO 20000. 
The document then has a scope which attempts to define what it covers, what it refers to, what it is and what it is not. And this is followed by terms and definitions. And the terms and definitions are quite lengthy and quite thorough. And it's important for us to understand the language that's used in a document like this and the meanings of it. Because a failure of interpretation of some of these meanings might mean a failure of compliance, not operating to the required standard. But when you look through some of these terms and definitions, you'll notice a great deal of similarity with ITIL. They are aligned and they are meant to be aligned. So when you look at things like known errors as a term, it will mean the same thing as it does in ITIL. This ensures that those working with that type of document are working with the same understanding of what is meant when certain things are said, stated or defined. Now let's go back to the scope point for a moment and delve into that a little deeper. In the general section of the scope, the document says that it gives specific requirements to establish, implement, maintain and continually improve a service management system. And it's worth noting that the point of continually improving it, if we're not continually improving what we do, we are not compliant with the standard. It's not good enough to simply have it and have a great one. We have to be constantly improving it. It then specifies that it includes all of the things necessary for services, so the planning, design, transition, delivery and improvement of the services. So it's acknowledging that it's the delivery of services is what the service management system is all about. It also makes a special point towards the delivery of value. And this is a highlight of what we've covered with ITIL 4 in pointing out that value is the end result that ITIL 4 is aiming for. Value is also the end result that this standard is aiming for. The scope then gives us a few examples of where this kind of document or where this kind of standard and understanding might be useful. And it's not just to the providers of IT services. As a document, it might be useful to a customer who wants IT services to understand what they should be expecting, to understand what they should be asking for, or what they should be specifying in their requirements. As a document, they might not be compliant themselves, but this kind of document is also meant to help them know what to ask for, know what to expect. It's also specifically for an organisation to demonstrate that it can do this to a certain standard, that it can do all these things that IT services need to the standard that's outlined in this document. It can also be used as an internal document for organisations to help them simply be better than they were. Even if they don't go for full certification, they might be working to the document in order to be competitive, be effective, be capable as an IT service organisation. Or simply want to improve beyond where they are now and they're looking for some guidance on what does better look like. Well, where else, where better to look than the international standard that defines what global excellence is meant to look like. The scope then kind of breaks the rules a little bit and defines a couple of the key terms. It's defining service and defining organisation. Makes it very clear right here what they mean by this because these terms are potentially interpretive or subjective and it's trying to make it very clear what we mean by a service and what we mean by an organisation. In 1.2, 
it's going into some detail to specify that this should be suitable for everybody. It's generic, intended to be applicable to any organisation, regardless of the size, regardless of where they are, the nature of the services that they offer. But it then takes pains to say that, well, because we've made it generic and that everyone should be able to use it, an organisation can't claim that they do things a little differently and therefore they should be exempted from certain expectations of the standard. That is not on. According to the ISO document, you do it all or you're not compliant. There are no exceptions. And they've gone out of their way to make it so suitable and so generic for everyone, specifically or partly to undermine that counter-argument that says, oh, look, you know, the standard's great, but we're a little different, so we're going to bend the rules. Well, we won't be compliant if we do that. Conformity is specific. It even goes on to say that whilst an organisation might conform within the areas of SMS that it controls, if it relies upon third parties, it has certain obligations in the way it works with those third parties to remain compliant and to conform with the standard. So it's being clear that an organisation can't avoid delivering to the standards requirements by saying, oh, well, look, our suppliers don't really do it right and we can't help that, so please give us an excuse. Well, no, there are no excuses. Under the ISO standard, if a supplying organisation isn't giving you what you need in order for you to remain compliant, you need to deal with that. You need to fix it. You need to change it. You need to make sure. Otherwise, we're not compliant. So to be compliant, the organisation has to show that they have enough control over what goes on and what they get from supplying organisations. They have to prove that they are in control. It's not enough to simply get what you want from those supplying organisations. You have to prove that you're in control of that, that you can always get what you need. And if you don't, you'll be able to deal with it and respond to it. That's the level of accountability that this document requires in order to be compliant in delivering IT services. I think goes one step further to make sure that if a third party is providing the entirety of a service within the service management system, then the organisation that's receiving that can't claim conformity to the standards. If they're not actually doing a significant portion of the work, then they can't be considered compliant if everything gets outsourced to someone else. So we can't simply get some other company who is ISO compliant and say, hey, you supply us everything, we will rebadge it and resupply that to someone else and then call ourselves ISO compliant. That won't work either. And it concludes with one little caveat that says that it's not trying to specify what tools to use or what technologies to use. It's not being that prescriptive. It doesn't say what products or anything that detailed. That's up to us as well as all of the consequences that come from owning those decisions. It's all up to us. This is the end of Lecture 7b. Hello and welcome to Lecture 7c of IT Service Quality Management. It's Brenton Birchmore here. We are getting into our ISO 20k document. We're going to talk about Chapter 4, 
or Section 4, the context of the organisation. And this is one of the new pieces that has been introduced with the revamp of the ISO 20K document since its 2011 version. Now, we already know that within the ISO document, there are no excuses. What ISO 20K has learned, and the reason this has been added, is because one of the things that can make compliance and conformance with these standards difficult are not being on top of all of the influencing factors, the forces at work upon the organization can make it difficult if we're not fully aware of them, if we're not tracking all of these forces, external forces typically, that can apply to what we do. So in understanding the context of the organization, it's on the one hand, know thyself, but it's also know all the stakeholders, But even one step beyond that, it's about know all of the influencing forces and factors. So it's saying to us that we shall determine the internal and external issues. We shall, we are required to know what's going to influence the SMS. Or our ability to achieve the intended outcomes, what we want our SMS to do. If anything's going to affect that, We need to know about it so that we don't get caught out and have surprises. The standard says you'll think of everything. You have to. And that starts with all of the different stakeholders, the interested parties. And it's it's an interesting point that whilst we're often used to referring to stakeholders, the ISO doesn't elevate them to stakeholder status. Simply being an interested party is enough to make them relevant and something that we need to understand. They don't need to have a stake in the service management system. They just need to have an interest and be relevant to it. So whilst the obvious interested parties are going to be things like customers of the services or suppliers to the services, there could also be other external groups. There could be peak bodies, industry bodies. There could be governmental departments. There could be laws. There could be anyone with which we have a relationship or who might be affected by what is delivered by the SMS. So any interested party, we need to know who they are. We need to be able to list them all so nobody misses out. And we need to know and understand why they're interested. What is their interest? So that we can either meet it or take it into account. In 4.3, it's saying we need to determine the scope of the SMS. What is it and what is it not? It's about removing ambiguity in understanding what the SMS contains, what are its boundaries and what will it do. And it's pointing back to the things that we just covered. So it's pointing back to the issues, the influencing factors that we just talked about in 4.1. It's referring back to any of the requirements of any of the interested parties that we just talked about in 4.2, and of course all of the services that are being delivered by the organization that are going to be wrapped up in that SMS. So the SMS and its scope is not just about these are the services. It's also understanding, and these are all the things that could influence the service, and these are all the things or parties that are interested in those services. All of that works together to define the scope of the SMS. 
it's also telling us that this is not a one-time static document. It specifically says the scope shall be available and maintained. This means that as these factors change, as the issues change, as the interested parties change or the services change, the scope of our SMS will naturally evolve. And we need to maintain that documented information to make sure it stays up to date. So it's not just about knowing ourselves at the beginning of setting up an SMS. It's about knowing ourselves on an ongoing basis, knowing all about what's relevant on an ongoing basis. And this point four, this clause four, is telling us that we must be on top of all of this information. It's then got an interesting point in 4.4. Here it's saying to us that we shall do this by the book. And it seems like a redundant statement to say that we shall establish, implement, maintain, and, and improve an SMS according to the requirements of this document. But this is the essential undertaking. This is the bit that says, well, taking all these factors into account, we will abide by this document. So this is the bit where, by accepting Clause 4, we're essentially saying we will not take or look for excuses. We will take everything into account, and then we will still deliver the SMS, run the SMS according to this document, even after taking all of the interested parties and all of the issues or influencing factors into account. So we're essentially saying no matter what, no matter what, we will do it by the book. Now let's drill down a little bit on what we might mean by issues. What, what are the issues we need to know about? Well, internal issues are going to be all of the obvious things like the resources of the organization, the technology. It'll also take into account the structure, the organizational structure. How is the organization and how is the authority distributed? It'll also take into account the culture of the organization, which includes collective habits. It'll take into account any existing methodologies or framework or principles that have been adopted. For example, is the organization working with ITIL or not, or to what extent? It's also going to take into account resource capabilities, or in particular, limitations. This might include human resource limitations, or this might include skill sets, or this might include infrastructure. This will be affected by the size and scale of the organization. So a smaller organization would view some of these things differently from a larger one. It's also about what kind of services are we wanting to deliver? Things like how difficult, how familiar are we with this? Uh, things like what kind of technology is it working with? It is a lot about what are the challenges, but it's not only about the challenges. It's also about what makes it easier. What are the opportunities what are the things that are in our favor that we need to make sure we're leveraging? Advantages or benefits that we make sure we capture and make the most of. When it comes to looking at the external issues, well, one of the frameworks that we could use is the PESTLE formula. So the PESTLE formula is the P-E-S-T-L-E acronym, which is the political environment that we're in, which is the government uh, the rules, the regulations, uh, the, the policies of the government, perhaps the way in which they manage or 
provide incentives or provide restrictions on certain kinds of activity. The second is the economic, like the competition. Who else is out there providing something like it? What is the purchasing power of our customers? Are there trade agreements that exist? Are there other economic factors that we need to take into account? Currency, for example. The S is the sociological. This is about the relationships that are implied or that are necessary or that are typical between anybody involved in the delivery of these services. Could be the social relationships with our customers, with our suppliers, or with our own resources. The T is for technological, and here it's about how modern is the technology we're working with, what are its technological trends, what are the benchmarks, what are the standards of that technology, which types of technology are we working with and leveraging, how is it changing, what are the dependencies, what do certain technologies require, etc. L is for legal. This is where you have elements like intellectual property rights, data privacy, security, compliance with certain laws, which are growing and expanding all the time at the moment. And E is for the environmental factors. So here you get things like not just sustainability and renewable energy factors, but electronic waste. You get factors such as uh, the climate that might be pertaining to a particular service. Climate might be relevant in particular services. It, some services might function because of a climate or might be addressing climate factors or weather-related factors, which have environmental factors that we need to take into account. For example, if our services are providing services to highly remote people, they might, due to weather changes, be unable to travel at certain times. Getting snowed in, getting rained in, flooded, these are factors that we might need to take into account. We can't simply blame the weather and say, well, we're not compliant today because we had an odd weather event. If weather is meant to or something we should take into account, it's one of the external issues that we need to think about. But it's worth noting that the point is about context, not content. It's not about getting a list of all the influencing factors and then putting them down and ticking them off and say, right, we've thought about that. Thinking about it means knowing its contextual relevance. What impact does it have? Does any of these issues have? Or what impact do any of the stakeholders have? What matters? In what way does it matter? So we weigh everything. We balance it. We understand the extent to which that influence might apply. And we put it in context so that every influencing factor is measured within context. So we're not overreacting to the wrong things or under-considering other things. We have it all neatly understood. This is the end of Lecture 7C.